Good morning, High Point Church Online. Great to be here with you. Uh, my name is Andy. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's always a pleasure to be worshiping with you online. Today, I want to speak to you about joy. We're in a series called Ebenezer, and very specifically today, I want to talk to you about building a joyful home. Now, I realize some of you that are watching, uh, you might be in an apartment, you might have roommates, um, your home situation, everyone's, everyone looks very different, right? So what we're talking about here are the, the people that you do life with, okay? If it's a family, kids, spouse, if it's work, if it's family get-togethers, maybe it's your neighbors, maybe you're just with your neighbors all the time, or you got just a band of brothers or sisters or friends. Whatever that looks like for you, we're calling that your home, so to speak, today. And we want to see a home that experiences great joy. Now, one of my favorite things to do when I've got a few extra minutes is I love to watch outtakes on YouTube from some of my favorite TV shows. Right. And I don't get to do it a whole lot, but you know, you look up season three, season four, and you know, of whatever your show it is, and you see these people that you've been watching, right, on, you know, actors and actresses, and you see them break character and they begin to laugh in a particular scene. It's not the thing that you see in the actual show, it's the stuff that gets, you know, eliminated on the cutting floor, and you see them laughing, and sometimes they laugh to the point of tears and they just cannot keep it together, and you're watching, you don't even know these people. You don't know them at all. You've never had a cup of coffee together. You've never had lunch together. You don't know what keeps them up at night. You don't know them one bit, and yet you're watching them laugh, and what do you do? You start to laugh, right? There's something about it. You watch somebody laugh, someone having such a great time, a joyous occasion, and it just... It rubs off on you because joy is contagious. There's something about it that just, it gets inside of you, right? And I realize in the world that we're in right now, we don't, we don't really want to talk about things that are contagious right now. I get that. However, today we're making an exception and that we're, we're talking about something that's great and wonderful, and that is joy. Joy is contagious. And if you're like me, you could probably use a little bit more of it right now. Joy in your home, joy just in your heart, joy in your life. I don't know too many people that think to themselves, yeah, I'm good on the whole joy front. No, most people could use and desire a bit more joy in their life. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Uh, this is the account of Jesus uh, being declared, his birth is being declared by angels in a field to, to shepherds. And this is what we originally initially see in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The announcement of Jesus being born was, 
was initially terrifying, but, but then one where, you know, the angel looks at him and says, hey, don't be afraid. This is a joyous occasion. This is the kind of news that will bring great joy to you and also great joy for everybody who hears it, everybody who experiences it, for all the people. Great joy. Not great duty, not great obligation, not great servitude, not great burden. Great joy. Great joy. And so here is my question for you today, especially if you are somebody who's put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're watching online and you haven't done that. You're in the right place today. Maybe you're someone who has put your faith in Jesus, but you just don't feel very joyous. We define joy as, as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. But biblically speaking, that is rooted in Jesus. Knowing who he is and what he's done for you, it causes great joy. But sometimes we don't really feel that way. We laugh about the contagious nature of joy and we laugh about outtakes and we would love for life to kind of just feel that way, right? Like it's just one giant laughable moment where we can just look at each other and smile and laugh and we literally have outtakes at the end of our services every week. Some of you stick around and you watch those things and you say, this is my favorite part of service. <laughs> more than what I am bringing, more than the worship, more than all the other things. You love to see us break down and be unable to keep it together, right? You love those moments, but they're moments. Like, that's not reality. Reality is filled with ups and downs, peaks and valleys. It's filled with hard conversations. Some of you are looking at life and success. It hasn't really delivered uh, for you what you thought it was going to deliver. It kind of just feels a bit empty, hollow, not very joyful, more joyless, especially after all the hours you've put in. Some of you are looking around at your family scenario and you're wondering, how did we get here? Marriage life, it's hard. It's tough. You don't know what to do in some of the situations you're in. You don't know what the right parenting decision is to make. And you find yourself weighed down. Life can feel burdensome. It's no wonder then that the average person approximately complains. Complains approximately 30 times every single day. Let me say that one more time. The average human being complains approximately 30 times a day. And we do that because there are hardships. There's difficulties. There's, there's, there's just weird situations and things you don't know what to do. We complain about it. And then what happens is, is your, your brain literally creates larger, wider neural pathways the more you complain, if you didn't know that. Here's a little neuroscience um, lecture this morning. Welcome to my TED Talk, right? Your neural pathways get wider the more you complain, which means as you complain, it's easier and faster to complain again. It's like taking a machete and hacking a path through the jungle and you, you've worn, you, know, you cut some branches down and you've worn the weeds down and you can see and recognize the path and now you can just walk through it over and over and over again and you've tramped that path down. 
Well, it's the same way with your brain when it comes to complaining. The more you complain, the easier it is to complain, and the faster your brain can complain. We literally create neural pathways for complaint. Oh, and in case you know, you're really enjoying this TED Talk, let's keep going with it. Uh, the hippocampus part of your brain, as you complain, begins to shrink. Meaning... Again, the hippocampus is where the critical decision-making is made. It's where intelligent thought takes place. Hard conversations are, are happening here through the hippocampus. And so your brain, ever so slightly, is contracting and getting a little bit smaller. And if there are kids watching, I'm sorry to have announced this, because this is the kind of thing that your kid will now look at you, mom and dad, every time you have something to say about anything, and they're going to point their finger at you and say that your brain is shrinking, right? They're going to make that accusation of you. I'm sorry to have armed them with that, but it's reality, okay? This is what happens to us. There's literally a neural effect, a physical effect, a spiritual effect when we complain. The truth is, it's easier to be an Ebenezer Scrooge by humbugging your way through life than it is to be a joyful Christian. Some of you complain all the time and you don't even realize it. Sometimes that's me. I can be that way. Here I am, like I mentioned, preaching, and I don't even recognize the fact that I'm griping about something 10 minutes later. And I've got to be careful of it, right? But here's the deal. If complaining can produce more complaining, if the neural pathways and the spiritual pathways in our heart and soul become ever so worn that it becomes easy for complaining to produce more complaining, cannot the opposite also be true? If we know that joy is contagious and all it takes is for us to watch a video of somebody laughing and then we start to laugh and we can't keep it together and you got tears coming down in your eyes because you're having such a good time. If we know that joy is contagious, then, then joy should also be able to produce more joy. And that is what we are after today. So what does it look like then to have the kind of home and the, the kind of people around you where you you are producing an environment that is joyful. So glad that you asked today. Turn to Mark chapter 2. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, and I, I don't know that I would have even recognized it, but I come back to this story maybe as much or more than any other story in the Bible. It's a little bit of a different one. It's probably not one that you're used to having someone unpack a whole lot. It's the calling of one of the first disciples, and his name is Matthew. And he wrote the book of Matthew that you read in the Bible. It's the first book in the New Testament written to a Jewish audience. And here we have Jesus calling Matthew to follow him in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, who is also known as Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, 
and Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, there's a lot happening here. There's a lot happening that you and I can learn and apply and do and live out in our lives. And I realize you're not a rabbi. You're not Jesus walking, right, around teaching by the lake in this moment. You're not looking at somebody, you know, as you walk by their cubicle at work and saying, follow me, you know, unless it's like to the water cooler, right, or to get a cup of coffee. You're not asking someone to actually follow you right in this moment like Jesus was. I'm aware that the context, it is a bit different. But understand some of these principles in the heart of what we see Jesus doing. Matthew is a tax collector. If you're unaware of what that means, it literally is, there's a tax booth, right, on the main highway as people are coming into the city. And, and farmers and merchants are being taxed here. Uh, uh, caravans are getting taxed here on goods that they're bringing into the city and also sometimes goods that they're bringing out of the city. And what Matthew would have done is he would have had an agreement with, with uh, the Roman principality at the time and he would have paid all of the taxes up front that Rome required from this particular city. He would have paid it all up front and then what he does on the back end is he collects taxes from everybody who's walking past his booth that is selling something, right? Or has some sort of, of commerce in the city. But what he does is he overcharges, right? He's already paid Rome. And so what he does is he looks at the situation and he, you know, his wheels turn and the cash registers going in his mind and he figures out how he can turn a profit. And so they overtaxed everyone intentionally so that they could create and make a profit. They're extorting people for money. And Matthew is a Jew working on behalf of Rome, taking advantage of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And so this man would have been hated. The lowest of the low. It's tax collectors and sinners. Many times tax collectors could be treated as, as less thans even than, than to people who were considered immoral, sexually immoral, prostitutes, etc. You've got tax collectors at the bottom of the rung, okay? No one wanted to be around them. In fact, you could even be considered unclean at times, depending on your relationship or proximity to someone who collected taxes. It was a big deal. It would have been hated, despised, and rejected. And the reason is because he's somebody who'd betrayed his people. That's Matthew, also known as Levi, sitting at his booth. We don't even think about his family, right? Like, maybe it was a family business. It's doubtful that it was. 
meaning that, that Matthew chose a career path that would have brought unbearable shame upon his mother and his father. Which means his mom and dad, it's very likely that he would have been ostracized at the family get-togethers, rejected there as well. I mean, part of Jewish life, it wasn't like today, right, where you, 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 know, you have your life and many times people compartmentalize work and family and church and, and faith, right? That, that is not the case for Jewish living and Jewish existence. It's all intertwined together. So to have a son, right, that is, that is a wayward son, that has turned his back on that which is right. It would, have been, it would have been the height of shame, and it would have impacted every family get-together that they had, because get-togethers were tied to worship, custom, and tradition. Probably would have been rejected at his own home. And then the part that gets me the most is the fact that Matthew's name his, his name is Levi. And the reason his name is Levi, son of Alphaeus, is his family heritage is that of the tribe of Levi. He's a Levite. It's the only reason he would have had a name of uh, uh, that, that Levi. Same way if you were named Judah, you would have certainly been from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin, etc., etc., and the Levites were known for doing what? Well, they took care of the temple, right? They were the, the quote-unquote modern day, I mean, they would have been like pastors, right? Deacons and elders preparing everything for worship. This, these are your church leaders, right? Getting things ready. These are, these are the people who felt called into ministry, right? And, and, and they're doing all the ministry things to allow people to come and worship. That's what the tribe of Levi was called to do. This was their calling. It was their destiny. You can read about it in the Old Testament. And yet here is Matthew, Somewhere along the line, maybe it was mom and dad, maybe it was grandma and grandpa, maybe it was great grandma and grandpa. We don't know where the breakdown took place, but we know that Levi obviously picked up a direction and went the opposite way. Maybe his family wasn't, maybe it wasn't noticeable or noble anymore for them to kind of step up and, and walk into this kind of ministry position. But I can promise you, it still wasn't encouraged for him to become a tax collector. And so you have the tribe of Levi being represented by name, and you actually have his behavior, however, representing the exact opposite. And so belief and behavior are at two opposite extremes. This is a church kid, a religious kid, who's wandered as far away as possible, the bottom of the rung. And you can just imagine him at his tax booth, because at this point in time, Jesus is, people are starting to know who he is. He wouldn't have been a complete stranger. He's at his tax booth, but he wouldn't dare come over and actually like fraternize with Jesus. That would have been, I mean, that would have been taboo. So he would have been, you know, he would have been at his tax booth and, you know, maybe Jesus is walking by and he's, you know, you know, he's, he's kind of leaning in, you know, leaning over the table 
Like, you know, can I hear what's going on? He's probably watching from a distance. You know, his interest is peaked. And so he's, you know, he's engaged somehow. He's probably not oblivious to Jesus in this moment. And Jesus walks over to the booth. Can you imagine, you know, Jesus all of a sudden eye contact with you? And you know how it is when you see somebody and you're like, I, I wanted to watch, but I didn't want to be seen. And then they see you and you don't know what to do. And so, you know, you're, you're shuffling to the left and to the right. That's probably what's happening here is Jesus is walking over to Matthew, also called Levi, and the crowd would have, it would have started off loud. And as Jesus continues to get closer to the tax booth, people probably have stopped talking. This is a scene. This is a moment. What on earth is Jesus doing talking to that guy? And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He looks at Matthew and he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and leaves it all behind and follows Jesus. And the next thing that we know is that he throws a big old party at his house. And he invites all the tax collector friends and all the sinners, probably because it's the only people who he was even able to have relationship with in the first place. And this is where they throw it down. And all the religious elite are miffed and they're upset and they're wondering how on earth can Jesus be spending time with this guy? Why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus investing here? What does Jesus possibly see in that guy? And although we, we've got lots of people, you know, the 12 apostles, right? I, I dare say the most contentious decision that Jesus made in terms of who he selected to follow him might have been this guy right here, the tax collector, the man who had betrayed his people. So you're probably sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, what on earth does this have to do with joy or building a joyful home? Well, we see Jesus doing some things here. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says it like this. Uh, Paul is writing. He's one of the apostles. And he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. See, most people settle for tolerating one another, but Jesus calls us to love one another. Jesus calls us to encourage one another, to be intentional with our words and intentional with building each other up. And so we see throughout the Bible, even though it may not explicitly be, be the word encouragement may or may not always be used, what we see is this spirit of encouragement that produces and lays the, the, the groundwork for a culture of joy to exist. Don't you feel better? Don't you feel happier when people believe in you? When people believe the best in you? When people are generous with you? When they're generous with their words? words, when they're giving you a high five and a fist bump, and they're calling the best out of you. Don't you feel better? Aren't you happier? Don't you trust more? Don't you have a little bit more wind in your sail? A little pep in your step? Of course you do. 
because that's what encouragement does. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. I'll share a story that I think illustrates it a little bit. A guy named Robert was born in Daytona, Florida, in 1942. His name's Robert. Drops out of school in the ninth grade, and he begins to work with his dad, who's a carpenter. At 18, he joins the Air Force, moves to Alaska, uh, where he spends the next 20 years uh, growing in the Air Force and the military, and, and he's got a reputation for being a tough guy. And so Robert has the nickname of Bust Em Up Bobby, right? He's become a drill sergeant. He's hardcore. And in order to make a little extra cash, he begins to paint on these, um, what is it, a mining pan, right? These little gold mining pans that people were using, you know, to, to, to go mining and trying to find valuable rocks. And <laughs> clearly, I don't know much about mining. <laughs> so they're using mining pans. He's painting them. You get my drift. And he's selling them at the marketplace, okay? Well... It begins to catch on, and he actually starts making enough money. He retires from the military, moves back home to Florida. And he begins to teach and coach other people on how to paint. And one of his students, by the name of Annette Kowalski, is so moved by his skill as a painter that she gets all of her life savings together and encourages him to get all of his life savings together. And they pitch a painting show to PBS. And it's not long after that the famous name of Bob Ross is born. All because we see literally a bit of encouragement happening. I didn't even talk about the instructor who fanned some things into flame while he was in Alaska. When he moved to Florida, the student and the students that he's coaching, they loved him so much and they spoke so much encouragement to him and, and it literally helped create step-by-step -step a plan of, of getting a show on television and Bob Ross Inc. was born. And you have a guy who's literally formerly known as Bust Em Up Bobby, who becomes known as the gentle painter who's just, you know, you, you know, just... I'm going to put a little bird right there. Just a happy little tree right there. Look at this fluffy little cloud. You know, why don't you just add your own little fluffy cloud wherever you are? Bust him up, Bobby, the drill sergeant, for 20 years. That's who, that's who he became, right? That's who he's known for. That's what he's famous for. And it, literally 300 different uh, uh, TV stations, 80 million people a day watching him. How something like that happened because of encouragement. Because people are an encouragement. I mean, yes, there's gifting. Yes, there's right time. Yes, there's right place. But there's nothing like someone looking you in the eyes and calling out your best. Annette Kowalski, she's an unsung hero in this story of Bob Ross. Oh, there are people in your own life and you know them. You may, maybe you haven't thanked them. Maybe you haven't looked them in the eye. But there are people who have, who have been so formative for you. They've encouraged you. They've been a blessing to you. And they, they saw something in you that maybe you didn't actually even see yourself. 
In the same way that Jesus walked over to Matthew, the betrayed, the one who's, who's been rejected, the one who's been doing the betraying, the one who's been stealing, the thief, the extorter, the tax collector. And yet Jesus sees past all of that and sees what Matthew can become. He sees something in there in the same way that Michelangelo, right? Is, he's got the block of marble, the block of stone, and he, he's able to see the David, right, that can come out of it. Jesus sees the best in you. He sees what you can become, and he calls this thing out. This is the posture of Christ. How much more should we do the same? When you read in the Bible and you see this word encouragement, the Greek word for it is periklesis. And when the Holy Spirit comes in John 14, the word that's used for Holy Spirit is parakleto. And you have para and you have klesis. And para means to come alongside and klesis means to call out. That's literally the definition of the Holy Spirit. The one who comes alongside of you and calls out. What is called out the best? What's called out of you? A heart to follow Christ. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What is it the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit grows the fruit of the Spirit in your life. In other words, it beckons to you. It summons you. And it calls the best out of you. This is the heart of Christ. This is the heart of Jesus. And if we want to produce joy in our homes, we've got to be the kind of people who stop seeing the worst everywhere and begin seeing the best everywhere. We've got to speak to these situations. You got to open your mouth and call the best out. Instead of seeing the worst, begin to see the best. Joy is produced. When we choose to see people for who they can become rather than who they have been. Now, I'm not saying that's always easy. That can be hard, especially when you've got a track record, especially when you've experienced pain and hurt. But this is where the, the Holy Spirit living inside of you gives you the strength gives you the heart to live like Jesus lives. And you get to do for others what Jesus does for you. This is how we produce joy in our hearts. This is how joy is produced in our homes. What does your home look like? Mom and dad, this is now, this is now a moment for you. Let's get real practical because it's easy to gripe and complain to your kids. It's easy to be critical with your kids. Guilty, right? There's always something that you can point out and make no mistake about it. You need to point things out. That's part of loving people as well. That's part of being a good roommate or a good spouse or a good, uh, a good parent. You've got to be able to have hard conversations with people. But it's interesting uh, to note Dr. John Gottman, who's a, an expert in family dynamics, family behavior, family research. He writes that the, 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 the healthiest and most joyful families have the five to one ratio of encouragement to criticism, meaning for every 
thing that you bring up that has to be done in a way that feels ugh, tough, you want to have five things that just feel great. Five moments where you're blessing somebody. Five moments where you're reminding them who they are. Five moments where you're telling them what a great job they did. Five moments where you're just, you're just affirming their worth and their value and what they mean to you. The truth is, it's so, easier to com- it's so much easier to complain, isn't it? To gripe? To be an Ebenezer? But God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes alongside of us and calls out the great things inside of us. And now we, as agents and ambassadors of Christ, get to do the same. This is how we build a joyful home. This is what we do. You come alongside and you draw out greatness inside of people. You believe the best. Think about it, even as we close today, think about it just for a second. How much happier do you feel? How much more content do you feel? How much more at rest and comfortable and safe and and just even excited and passionate about life do you feel when you know the people around you believe the best in you and are taking the time and effort to try to pull out what God's put in there? It's the foundation for building a joyful home. You get to become like Jesus in this moment. Come alongside and call out the best. Father, I thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be joyful. And you've also called us to to produce joy everywhere that we go. And so, Father, I pray that even as we close the message today and as we go about uh, literally just the affairs of the day, I pray that we would be the kind of people, Lord, who open our mouth and call greatness out, who believe the best, who are intentional, who remind people of, of the best that they can become, not the worst that they've already been. God, help us to be those kinds of people. Help us to see the Matthews in the world and to call greatness out of them to become more like you. But help us to be joyful. We love and worship you. Amen. Amen. It's great to be here with you today. We'll be here right, uh, we'll be here next week uh, for the next message in the Ebenezer series. Can't wait to see you then.